Welcome to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with Lee Jackson. Three, two, one, and then join me with a clap, yeah? Oh, honestly, you and your claps. All right. <laughs> three, you do the three, two, one, and then I'll yeah. do the clap with you. Three, two, one. Actually, you know what? Hang on a minute, though. Do you want me to do the three, two, one as well? Well, just count down with me, and then we'll clap, and then everyone's happy. I hope this is going to go on the podcast. This will be the best bit. <laughs> All right, then. So we'll both go three, two, one together. Are you ready? But how, do, how will we know that we're three, two, one at the same speed? Well, because, you know, I tell you what, I'll start you joining. Yeah, do, why don't I just have silence? Then you'll see my clap. Oh, that'll be lovely, that. Yeah, yeah. That'll be lovely. Uh, okay, I'm, I'm shutting okay. up now. Three. <laughs> three, two, one. That's that'll perfect. do. Yeah, you've got a lovely Great. little line there, there. Thank you. Uh, welcome to the next episode of Get Good at Presenting, the podcast with myself, Lee Jackson. Today I've got a really special guest. He's an old friend of mine, and he's, I guess he's not a speaker as such, a professional speaker. He's way more advanced than that. I can't uh, speak, sp- though. I can't speak. <laughs> you can't speak. Yeah. I'll wait I'll until speak. you've introduced me, though. It's, it's always good to get a good introduction, John, because yeah, yeah. your, your credits are... Really something else. So today, the <clears throat> on the podcast with my slightly croaky voice, for which I apologise, is the amazing comedy magician John Archer. Yoo-hoo! There he is. Hello. Now, let me just list what you've been on on TV. You've been on Help My School Trip is Magic, Help yeah. My Slab Supply Teacher is Magic, yeah. Help My Supply Teacher is Still Magic. BAFTA winner, series. BAFTA winner, that one. BAFTA winning, mm. Don't Blow the Inheritance, and you were the first guy ever... To fool Penn and Teller, is that right, John? It is right. Yeah, I'm getting a bit bored with that though. Everybody, everybody's just telling me about it. You, you, it makes you realise you haven't achieved anything for a while when the the last big thing they talk about is five years ago. Um, um, yeah, but yeah, but you are the first, so that was a, that's a big thing, isn't it? Yeah, you know, that's true. First. That's true. Yeah, and yeah. there's also um, the sketch show. Was that the was that the Australian one, the sketch show? No, Australian was a UK one. It was uh, it was uh, ITV. Uh-huh. It was with Lee Mack, Tim Vine, Ronnie Ann Corner, Jim Tavray. Uh, I'm, I'm actually working else. with Jim Tavray in a few weeks' time. Oh, yeah? Oh, what, over yeah. here in the UK? Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah right. I think he lives over there in America now, doesn't he? Yeah, he and does, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he, he, he popped back for the... He, he came and did the Edinburgh Festival last year, so... Uh, um, well, he's, it, he's coming back to do an NHS thing. I'm doing a NHS uh, event, and he's the... Uh, he's I'm hosting the whole thing, and he's the, the keynote speaker on that day. So, uh, um, that'll be fun, yeah, because he'll probably be talking about his whole accident experience, won't he? It is indeed, yes. But the yeah. sketch show is probably you probably don't number of people have heard it, but it's got a really funny sketch in it that you see popping up on social media all the time, isn't it? The one, the the three blokes at the toilet. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I, I didn't have anything to do with that one. I think that might have been that might have been one that was written by Lee. It was Lee or Jim wrote that one. It wasn't. It wasn't me or Tim. I, I tell you, I, I wrote them with Tim, with Tim oh, Vine. Very good. So, yeah, yeah. So tell me, tell me about your relationship with with Tim Vine because you are. You're touring uh, nearly every year with 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 Tim Vine, a national tour, aren't you? Yeah, I uh, yeah I am. I'm uh, I toured with him a lot last year. We did about eighty dates last year. We've just got ten this year. We just we're just sort of finishing it off, and then he's recording it, doing like a DVD record of it um, at Richmond oh, Theatre in London. So yeah, yeah. But... So so, so, when it was, so I've got a few questions. One of them is about that actually. Yeah. When you when you're doing eighty dates in a row, and I, I saw you when you were in Leeds, and yeah. it was great. It was a great gig. But when you, I guess you're doing like four or five dates and you go home for a couple of days and then four or five dates or whatever. Uh, uh, how do you not get bored like doing the same thing every night? Do you ever change what you do just to keep your interest in what you're doing? 
Well, I always have built-in moments in all of my routines where um, I go off-piste, so to speak. So, so I have I have a I have a route that I'm taking with each routine. But there are moments where I talk to the spectator and I ask them about themselves, and then I might incorporate that information. Uh, in the routine so for example if they i'm doing a card trick and they tell me that they're an accountant then i might relate whatever's going on in the trick about them being an accountant so so it is it is always slightly different there's always uh, a little bit difference and also in the in the tricks i'm doing um the lottery trick which i don't know if you remember me doing that yeah where where i'm asking people to give me numbers and i ask them to give me numbers that have something to do with with them an interesting fact about them so every night um what's going to happen there is unknown to me um so so that Uh, you know so sure even though even though the tricks are the same and the routines are the same um there's always moments where it's going to go off and be different so no 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 one show ever ever is uh is exactly the same it's not like a play as such yeah so 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 they so they were a successful Comedy magician, probably the best in the country, I would say, John. I've oh, seen you many times. Thank you're, you. you're a lovely man. I'll send you the money. Yeah, yeah. It's about time you sent me something. But, yeah, do you know what I mean? But, but let's, let's go back right to the beginning, because when I first met you... Yes. You were still a serving police officer, I think. Yeah, well, that's going, that is going back a long time. That is 23 <laughs> years ago now. So so, yeah. so, how did you how did you get out of the police, and why did you suddenly realise, actually, I want to be you know, a performer and doing comedy magic around the place. How, how did you make that transition? Uh, t- to be honest, it was um, it was sort of slightly pushed. Um, I was doing it semi-professionally when I was in the police. Uh, so I, I had it classed as a business interest and I was doing gigs on the odd weekend. I wasn't charging a lot of money because I had an income from the police, but I used to charge a little bit to cover things. <coughs> And then, um, yeah. and then what happened was, uh, I, I, I developed a condition called Meniere's disease, which is a hearing condition in one ear. So I, I started getting sort of deafness and noise in my left ear and dizzy spells. But I was, at the time when it was diagnosed, I was just working as school liaison officer. So it was a relatively easy, safe job I had. I wasn't out on the streets, you know, fighting burglars or anything. <laughs> Um, you, 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 you weren't running over uh, fences. Uh, no, no, I, I had a very cushy dump. I was sort of, I, I was headhunted for it because I did comedy and magic. They thought he'll be great in schools, I think. But that was, it was a five-year post, and that was due to come to an end. And I was getting quite busy with, you know, the work I was doing, and I, uh, and I, I can't remember who it was, but somebody said, "Why don't you just tell the police surgeon about your hearing condition and see what they say?" Because it'd been diagnosed privately through a specialist, but I'd never mentioned it to the police. Uh, and basically, I mentioned it, and the guy said, um, the police uh, surgeon said, well, you know, how you want to stay in the job? I, I said, well, I don't mind, really. And he said, well, I can't see how you can carry on for another 20 years, you know, deaf in one ear and chances that you might get dizzy out on the street. So um, he put me on the sick there and then that day, and I said, you know, and, and that's it. I'll ring your sergeant and tell him you're retiring. So the good thing about it was I'd got 10 years in, and the way the police pension worked was... Once you had 10 years service, it wouldn't happen before, but once you had 10 years service or more, if you were medically retired, you got a 17-year pension. 
So it's all very, it's all very dull. This, but anyway, it meant that I had, it meant that I had a little bit of a buffer. It wasn't a lot of money, but it, it sort of almost covered my mortgage. So it meant that, so I could leave, and I thought, well, at least my mortgage covered. I'm, you know, I'm still had to pay the other bills, but I thought if I can get a few gigs, you know, you know, every other week or whatever, then I'd be all right. And it sort of it worked really. It sort of just took off, and it was great. So, um, but yeah, it was something that I, so I, I think I wanted to do, but just having that little thing happen. Made it uh, made it work, you know. Yeah. So yeah, because uh, I think you were probably just at the end of that when I met you at a kind of youth conference thing that was in the northeast. That was a long time ago. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and I think you might have been hosting the evening, and I was in a band at the time. Yeah, you were singing Figgy Biscuits. I remember it. Yeah. yeah, it was a classic, classic number. Classic yeah, number. But that was good. Figgy Biscuits. Yeah. And then I probably saw you every year, probably at the same event, and you just got better and better. I remember you, then, you know, your kind of talky bits got longer, and then you started using the ukulele and stuff. And, yeah, 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 because uh, I remember you as well not getting any better, just staying exactly the same. Um, it's exactly. Funny, it's funny, isn't it, the little parallels that we have. That's right, we're exactly the same in many ways, John. <laughs> Absolutely. I, 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 didn't, I was doing a gig uh, a few weeks ago, and someone said to me, you sound just like John Archer. You know, he's not your brother or someone that said to me. Yeah, so maybe, maybe we are separated at birth, yeah, John. I yeah, don't know. Scary, don't scary know. thought. So, so let's talk about some of the big gigs. Because the people listening to this, they want to know some stuff about um, performing and getting the best out of yourself and what you do. So, so what's been the biggest gig you've ever done? What's the biggest ever event? I don't know. I mean, I've done some outdoor events where there's been like, you know, tens of thousands there. But to be honest, um, the reality is only about 40 of them are actually watching you. The rest are wandering around <laughs> eating hot dogs, looking, you know, you know, so outdoor events, I don't really count. Biggest indoor event for me is probably the Royal Albert Hall. Uh, I did a, like a charity event there and I think that holds about four and a half thousand. Wow. So, um, so, you know, that, that was a big one. Uh, on tour last year with Tim, we did the, uh, the Apollo, Hammersmith Apollo, which is about 3,700. Yeah. That's another, you know, big venue. And I've done a few 3,000 seater theatres, well, quite, quite a lot of them really, you know, different places and different times. But I yeah. mean, that's, you know, theatre wise, that's about as big as it gets really anywhere here. You know, th- you know, 3,000, there aren't many that and above. Yeah. Um, a few of the Apollos are like two and a half to three and a half, aren't they? The, Manchester, I played that a few times yeah, back yeah. in the days and that kind of thing. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I think my, my my biggest gig was uh, Festival Hall in London, oh, Royal right. Festival Hall in London. Yeah, yeah, that was a very very. It's like it was like a an event for school kids, but it was that was massive. I remember that. So so when when you're on a big stage, what do you do to sort of uh, change what you deliver when you're on that big stage? What do you actually do yourself to? Well, I mean, it it depends. It depends a little bit how long I'm doing and what I'm doing, but. I tend to um, I tend to leave gaps after punchlines more than I would normally because what you find is in a big venue is it takes a while for the laughter to hit you. So like the Royal Albert Hall, I was aware I could remember doing a punchline and then thinking to myself, "Oh, they didn't get that," and then hearing a bit of a laugh and thought, "Oh no, they did that. They get that," and then hearing the laugh just build and build, get bigger because it sort of comes at you slightly more as a wave. Um, so that's one thing I'd do is just slow down a little bit in, in those moments and allow allow the audience to come back at you because it just takes longer than in a small venue. Uh, the other thing is I'll I'll probably be just a little bit bigger um, with uh, 
you know, facial stuff. So, I, you know, if I if I pull a silly face, which, I, you know, I'm quite visual with my face and I pull lots of silly faces and, uh, and stuff with lines and different things, then uh, I'll make those bigger because obviously when somebody's, you know, 150 yards away, uh, <laughs> it's it's less obvious. And also I might wear makeup as well. I don't wear makeup very often, but big theatres I sometimes might put a little bit of, uh, a little bit of, maybe just a little bit of eyeliner um just just to make your eyes pop out a little bit you know depending on how long if i'm doing a long set i might consider moving around a little bit more than i normally do i tend to anchor myself to the microphone uh, and i use a microphone stand and i anchor myself and using a stand with a mic is great because a lot of people just wander around and it's really annoying whereas if you've got a stand it, it just anchors you um solid but sometimes if it's in a big venue um sometimes you do want to have a bit of movement so i might consider taking the mic out of the stand and wandering a bit with it uh but if it was for a short set that wouldn't worry me too much yeah i, I was delivering some presentation skills last week and with some leaders and one of the things that, that they find really difficult is is kind of to become bigger when they're at the front of a room yeah yeah, yeah. you know that they find it hard and, and they're not performing but you've Depending on the numbers, you've basically got to become that much bigger, haven't you? Depending yeah, yeah. On the numbers you're with. You do. I mean, you, you become bigger just, you, even though you've got amplification, you're just a little bit bigger with your voice. Just because, you know, to talk in a, like, if I was talking to somebody in a living room, I'd just be talking like this. But if I was talking to them in a big theatre, and I just, and I was amplified, but I still talked at this level. It sounds like I, I. It sounds like I'm not in the right place. You know what I mean. So, yeah. so I will stay. Even though I'm amplified, I will still um, project theatrically a little bit more than I would in a smaller place, um, just because it, it makes it feel like you're aware that people are further away. I know it sounds stupid, but um, so I'll just be. I'll, I'll, my voice will be a bit bigger and bolder, uh, and then gestures as well. Um, you know, become a bit bigger. So, so it's where you might, you know, you might just hold your hands out to your side with your palms out as if to say, oh, hello. You know, that becomes a, a, a arms wide, a bigger gesture. Um, so, 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 so yeah, gestures become a bit bigger. And also, you know, you, you, you've got to look in a lot more different places as well. You know, if you're, you know, if you work somewhere like the Palladium, which is, you know, I mean, it's got so many levels and they're all right in front of you, but they go, they go up. You've got to remember just to constantly just keep looking, you know, up rather than just looking out front and just keeping that one level. Um, so, very good. So, yeah. how do you? Um, I mean, why did you choose comedy? Comedy magic? Because why did you not become, you know, a stage magician or something like that? Do you know what? I, I didn't really choose it. It sort of chose me. I. I um, I like magic and I like comedy and I didn't really want to do one without the other. So, I mean, I, I suppose I did start doing comedy slightly before the magic, but I was still interested in magic. But it was when I was in bands, you know, and um, and I would just crack a few jokes between the songs. But that didn't last very long at all. That might have only lasted for, you know, a few months before it was like, oh, I'm going to do a trick or a bit of business or a silly prop. So I've always done them both together because, uh, you know, I'm not interested in doing Darren Brown style straight magic. And equally, I'm not interested in doing Tommy Cooper style, um, you know, bad magic with strong comedy. I, I, I've always wanted to try and do 
strong yeah. tricks and strong comedy because I love them both. So, yeah, it just happened really. I, I'd, you know, I, I was never at a point where I thought I'm going to try and be a comedy magician. It sort of, I, I wanted to be a yeah. performer and then realised that comedy and magic was what was happening with me. Well, um, uh, as you know, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I love comedy and I study it and I watch documentaries and read yeah, about it. And, and, so, and so you should, yeah. Of course, of yeah. course. I only, I only read about you, John, obviously. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, just, uh, uh, is there a bit of a myth about Tommy Cooper? Um, that whenever there's a documentary, they usually say he was a brilliant magician. And I, I reckon he was probably just an okay magician, was he? He was quite. He was. He was a reasonably good magician. Yeah. I mean, he. Uh, I mean, th there's only really one. There's a, there's a a clip on YouTube of him performing on the Parkinson show, where he yeah. does some. He does a sponge ball routine and a, a couple of silly things, I think. But yeah, he was. He was a reasonable magician. But he wasn't. He wasn't like one of the best, you know, um, magicians around. Yeah. He was. He, he was all right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but I, I mean, pe people people like to you know people like to you know if if somebody you know isn't known for something and then you go oh but he was they they always exaggerate the the level you know it's like if you find an actor who's you know they're they're a fan of a certain band they might just like a certain band but you know it ends up being oh he's a massive fan of that band and you just you know just <laughs> okay. yeah people like ex you know they like uh, extremes yeah. don't they when they're talking T about stuff yeah t tv is all about extremes that's the yeah, yeah. Uh, real reality tv shows in a nutshell isn't it yeah, yeah you know, definitely you never get you never get any normal people on reality tv do you no 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 yeah. really. um so why um so uh, so uh, i guess from people who aren't maybe into comedy magic but they're they're speakers listening to this one of the things we have to do is kind of try out new material. Yeah. Like, you know, we have a new story or a new facts or something that we want to do. And I'm doing that all the time. So how uh, how do you actually try out new jokes or new tricks? How do you manage to do that? Especially when you're doing, a, you know, some pretty big theatres. You can't really fail in those environments very easily, can you? No, well, I mean, no, that's true. And, and one of the rules would be if it, if it was a big, important gig, then I probably wouldn't try out anything new. Um I mean, when I'm touring with Tim, that's a great excuse for me to try new stuff out and work on it because people haven't actually come to see me. They've come to see him, so I'm on first. So I, I, I quite a lot of my new material is developed on a tour with Tim. So I'll, um, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll decide on a couple of new routines I'd like to do, and I'll, I'll work them in before the tour at smaller gigs. But then by the time I go on tour, I've, I've got a rough idea of what the routine is. But it still needs padding out with stronger gags and, and editing and, you know, sometimes I have to change the way I, you know, where I put something on. You, you just, logistically, you just think, hang on a minute, that table should be on the other side and all that sort of stuff. But all, all of that then develops through the two. And because I've got Tim with me and we've got a two manager uh, who's got a good sense of humour as well, they watch it every night and, you know, they're giving little notes and saying, well, why don't you say that? Or you, when you ad-lib that, it was really funny, you should do that again. And So they develop. But, I mean, that's that's a little luxury that doesn't happen all the time. That Usually the way I work in new stuff is um, I will I will wait until I'm doing a reasonably long set and for me, that could be, I could be doing two 45 minutes, two 50 minutes with a break in the middle. So it's quite a lot. And I will, I'll put the new, whatever the props are for the new trick. Or if it doesn't have any props, um, I'll, I'll just have a, a little note to remind me. Uh, I, I tend to sort of, I, uh, be, 
the way I the way I have a set list is the order of things on my table. So I put them normally in, in a circle, either clockwise or anti-clockwise on the table. So as I okay. pick one up and do it, I, you know, I, I look down, I think, oh, that's the next thing I plan to do on this, because it, it's not always the same. So, and I'll just work my way around the table. Usually, I don't know why, but usually anti-clockwise. Um, I'll start with the nearest, and I've just got a table that's about 18 inches square. Um, yeah. and, and I'll put the new thing sort of about three quarters of the way through. Um, but yeah. I can I can skip it if I want to, or I can I can do it in earlier. But I'll I'll wait and see if it's a good audience and I'm going well. And if it's a good audience and I'm going well, um, and I'm enjoying it, then I'll I'll put the new thing in. And the new thing will have a skeleton idea of how I know it's meant to go. So let's just imagine it's a, somebody picks a card i wouldn't be doing this but somebody picks a card they put it back and i find the card i might know that i'm going to tell them uh, a little story about my granddad i might know that they're going to pick a card i'm going to make a joke about the way they pick it the way they put it back and then um i might know that i've got a joke about the way that i reveal the card and that might be all i've got just a few little um ske- I, I, yeah. I call it a skeleton uh, and I'll put it in the new show, and if it goes well, I'll do it again, another show, maybe straight away the next show, if it if it went good enough. If not, I might play with it and leave it for a month or two as I think about it. Um, and then each time I do it, um, I add um, meat to the skeleton, I add meat to the bones and, and, and flesh it out um, until eventually, you know, and sometimes it can take a year with me working on a new routine, eventually after about a year or so, it feels like, right, that's finished now. I like it. It doesn't feel like it's got any dead spots in it, you know. Um, wow. So it can take you a year to develop that. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it, a lot of it is, it's not just adding stuff. It's getting rid of stuff as well. It's not, you know, it's getting rid of of all the stuff that's pointless. I, I have a little thing which sometimes when I, I do lectures, um, I always say to people, um, you know, your routine should be uh, on fire. And it's a little acronym I use, which is everything in the trick, in the performance, should be either funny, interesting, relevant, or entertaining. And and if it doesn't tick one of those four boxes, or at least one, I mean, sometimes it can tick two or three of those boxes. It can be funny, it can be relevant, and it can be interesting. Um, But, you know, there's so much where people just talk and they say things like, um, Okay, if you just come and stand over here and you go, well, was that funny? No. Was it relevant? No. Just, just, <laughs> you know, it's not relevant. Just, just, just grab them by the arm and move them or, you know, or, uh, or, or, or make it, if you have to say it, if it is relevant, you do need them specifically stood in a specific place, then make that relevant thing funny as well or interesting or, you know, come and stand yeah. over here, you know, underneath the bucket, or you know, those old lines, you know, stand stand, <laughs> up, stand over the trapdoor. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of those lines were just lines that were ma- made to make necessary speech more interesting. So, so yeah, I always think funny, interesting, relevant, or entertaining. So, I, w- I want I want my routines to be nothing but that by the time they're finished. Wow. And uh, the difference, I guess, you know, I, I've talked to you about this. I've done a little bit of stand-up. Yeah. Um, and yours is not stand-up. Yours is comedy which, magic, which is slightly different. It's, yeah, it, it, it's sort of stand-up comedy magic. I mean, it, it's, yeah. yeah, it's a, it's an odd but little but genre. I, but but my, my, my understanding, I, I did like a six-week, I've done like two or three six-week courses with stand-up at the end of it. Yeah. And I was amazed. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm a professional speaker. It's what I've done it most of my life, ten and a half years 
full-time professional. Yeah. And and I was amazed at how difficult it was doing stand-up comedy. Yeah. I, I was shocked at the difference, actually. Yeah, it, it, it is it is difficult because you, you, you're being judged purely on the comedy. It's like when you, when you hear a... You know, if you hear a speaker or you hear a... You know, you go to church and hear a preacher or something and they do a joke... Um, it's almost guaranteed to get a bit of a laugh because it's um, it, it's coming out of context. It's you know it's, yeah. it's like if you know if somebody breaks wind in a funeral, it gets a laugh because it's unexpected and you know and it you know it's inappropriate. So, so you know if if you're a speaker and you do a a joke, it's like well you, that's not you're not there to be funny. So when you are, it's a pleasant little surprise, um, and it'll get a laugh. But when your sole job is to be there to be funny. Um, everything's judged to, to a slightly higher level. You know, it's like everything has to be, you know, funny, really. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you can't think, well, I'll coast through for a minute and a half. I mean, you, you, you can. I mean, there are some people who, you know, you sit and watch some great comics who will chat about stuff, um, and it'll be quite a while before you hear an actual punchline, but it's still interesting. The stats that I've seen, comedians are looking for a laugh every 20, 30 seconds. Well, I would say, uh, yeah, yeah, even more than that sometimes, you know, certainly wow. certainly three or four a minute, yeah. But, um, I mean, it, but it, again, it depends who it is. You know, Tim is like, you know, Tim can get, you know, he can get a, a laugh every 10 seconds. It's just, you know, just bang, 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 bang. But then you get but some that's... observational people who are, I mean, Stuart Lee, if you watch some of Stuart Lee stuff, he can, he can talk and spin a story and there's no... Massive punchlines for quite a while, but but it's what he's doing. It's interesting and it's uh, engaging. Mm. And then when he does get a laugh, it's a big laugh, you know. So, um, not every, you know, not everybody's getting the same amount of laughs per minute. But it's the quality of laughs and the fact that what you're doing is always leading to laughs. I think. Yeah, and I, th- I think if you go to a Stuart Lee gig, you're not going for a belly laugh. You're going for political satire, aren't you? Biting wit, aren't you? Yeah, it's yeah, a yeah, yeah, gig, yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah. No, so. it is a different thing. But I mean, you still. Definitely say he was a comic, yeah. you know, you know. Um Yeah, sure, sure. So who's um who's the best speaker? Not not magician, but who do you you must have been you must have done you've done loads of corporate gigs and stuff over the years. Have you who's the best after dinner or the best speaker you've ever heard, John? I don't know. Do you know what I don't I don't hear a lot of them because I tend to I tend to be on Quite a lot of the times I'm on after them, uh, um, and I'm, you know, I'm hiding somewhere else. So I don't listen to a lot. <laughs> I mean, I do like Rob Parsons, you know, from Care for the Family. Um, yeah, you know, I, I just think I, I think he's a brilliant. He's a brilliant storyteller, um, and he's got that Welsh accent. So he's, um, I really like, I really like listening to him just tell stories when he's talking about, you know, yeah, stuff. But. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean, yeah, best-selling, best-selling author, isn't he? He's yeah, done a lot of good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah, he's done, yeah. He's done some great, great books on you know, sort of Assistant. family and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, but um, yeah, so, I, I, I don't know really. I'm, I'm trying to think. If okay, I, that's right. So who, who's been the um, who's been your kind of comedy heroes? I know, I know. You, there's been a quite an exciting moment in your life the last few weeks where the. Uh, the Laurel and Hardy film came out. I know that you're a big Laurel and Hardy fan, is that right? Yeah, I'm a big Laurel and Hardy fan. Also, I found out that the guy who directed that film um, was my first director on TV, a guy called John Baird. So, oh, great. Yes, yeah, so it was really funny. He, he, um, I did a show, first ever television show I did was called Undercover Magic on Sky. And um, 
and it was John Baird was our uh, director. And then I was watching, you know, some things coming up with this Laurel and Hardy movie and thinking, oh, I'm really looking forward to that. And I was watching a YouTube clip sort of promoting it. And suddenly it was interview with the director and it was John and he sort of friend on Facebook. Oh. So I just got back to him and said, Hey, you know, really pleased because he's a lovely, lovely guy. So I was really pleased yeah. to soon know what, but yeah, yeah, they're, I'm big fans of them. I mean, sort of an eclectic mix really for me. The old, you know, love Morecambe and Wise, Tommy Cooper, uh, Les Dawson. Um, yeah, you know, I, I'm a big, I'm a big Les fan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Them. You know, but, but but tons of them really, all of that era. Dave Allen, you know, Monty Python, and then and then lots of guys who are around now doing stuff as well. You know, like Eddie Zard, obviously Tim Vine. I love what he does. Um, um, Tonk, Paul Tonkinson, uh, just yeah. lots of people who you know. Have you ever worked with Billy Connolly? No, I never worked with Billy, but I was a massive fan of Billy Connolly as well. So you know, sort of, yeah. um, loved when he was doing all his theatre tours, which sadly he's not doing so much now. But uh, yeah, 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 loved. loved uh, I mean, he's just he's just another brilliant storyteller, isn't he? He's just great at. Um, you know, telling the story and there's just no fat. It's just all meat on the bone. There's nothing there that needn't be there. So, yeah, so you, I guess you're kind of at the top of your game, really. You, if if there is a, a little league of comedy magicians, you're pretty much up, up there, John. You know, you, you teach all these new magicians in the ma- magic circle and all that kind of stuff, don't you? And it, Yeah, I you've mean... Won, you've won all these awards and stuff. But um, I guess my question is, wh- where do you go to learn? Well, I'm, I mean, there, there are, you know, I've listened to lots of people lecture as well and, and not, not necessarily other comedy magicians. I mean, I, uh, you know, that series that's on the internet of master classes, um, that you can yeah. buy into. I mean, I, I got the, um, the master class of, uh, Steve Martin, uh, you know, and that was, that was, I don't know how many, about 30 little 10, 15 minute episodes of him talking about all sorts of stuff about comedy. Um, but then I go, you know, I go around the world where I'm at conventions and there are other comedy magicians speaking and talking and I speak to them. But I get my inspiration from, you know, lots of things. It doesn't necessarily have to be comedy. You know, I can, you know, I can see a, a, a story, you know, on the internet or, a, you know, something in the Guinness Book of Records or Ripley's Believe It or Not and think, well, oh, that's an interesting little bit. Uh, maybe I could talk about that, or maybe I could do something funny about that. So, um, yeah, it's uh, it's just what, whatever comes up, really, anything and everything. So, so when I was changing jobs and wasn't going to run a charity anymore, and I was going to be a professional speaker, um, I think I asked you for various bits of advice. Yeah. And I said, give. I said, give up, didn't I? You said give up, yeah. You, you, you know, there's about 40 minutes of banter and merciless ribbing, like who's going to pay for you, Lee, and all that. Kind yeah, of stuff. yeah, yeah. I still uh, don't know. I still don't know who does that. It's weird, isn't it? Uh, but you, you said something to me which I've always remembered, and I still share with people when I'm when people ask me questions about speaking, and and that is something you said to me, and I just wonder whether you can expand on this. You said to me, um, like a professional is someone who does it anyway when they don't feel like it. You know, I think you said something. Like you you know, you're a professional comedian when someone's just died, but you still got to get on stage and do it anyway. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I think, yeah. 
Yeah, I think. Yeah, I can't remember saying that, but um, but it is. Well, it was some, something like but, that. Yeah, but but it is true. I mean, you, you get to the point where even when you don't want to go out and do a gig, you can still walk on stage and turn it on and do it. Um, you know, because it 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 is it is like a switch. I mean, I I, I often go to gigs and don't feel like doing it, not because I don't feel like performing. I just maybe I'm tired or you know. I've got a load of friends who are going out to a party and I can't be there because I've, I've got a gig and I just think, oh, I wish I was, you know, I wish I was out there with that lot and I've got to go and do this gig. But, um, or I can be feeling really ill, loads of reasons, but as soon as I step on stage, um, you know, it just sort of, it, it kicks in. And I think, I think a lot of that is just because you do it so much that, um, it, it becomes almost like a, a gear in your life, you know, it's, a, it's another gear that you've suddenly developed. It's almost like a muscle that you've developed. This, this, you know, this performing muscle. Um, it's just got bigger and stronger, and you know, you can you can just switch it on. I, th- I think I think actors call it doctor theatre, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, you, yeah. that kind of thing that you can you not feel. Yeah, because I, I wasn't. Fe- I was. Fe- I've got a bit of a sore throat, and I was feeling a bit rough last week, and. As long as I rested, I, I managed to do two full days of training, presentation skills last week. I was exhausted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but once I started with my material, like you said, you just kind of get, I just kind of got lost in it, really. Yeah, you do, you kick it, then you come off stage and you feel fine because you're pumped up full of adrenaline, then an hour yeah. later you're just dead again. But um, <laughs> Yeah, I just went back to my hotel room and I didn't speak to anyone else. It was fine by me. Yeah, so yeah. It was, yeah. yeah, so I'm a little bit careful of booking in extra meetings or you know, seeing seeing extra stuff with clients, sometimes I just want to go and collapse, you know, particularly after a day rather than just an hour, do you yeah, know what I mean? So, yeah, oh, definitely, yeah, yeah. So, so have you got, so if anyone, you know, if you've, someone comes up to you and they want to be a, a speaker or a comedian or, you know, what's the, what's the usual advice that you give people? Because I, I get loads of phone calls and, you know, lots of tweets and stuff about that. How can I get into it? What's the advice that you've learned over the years to give to newer people? Well, I mean, it depends a little bit where they are when when they ask for that advice. You know, yeah. um, um, I mean, if somebody's never done any speaking at all, I mean, I don't really get advice from people about being speakers very much. I get mainly, you know, people who want to go full time as an entertainer. But I mean, it's the same yeah. sort of thing. You still you're still getting paid to perform to what you know speaking is a performance um if, you know if you do it right it's it's you know uh, you, you've got to do exactly the same thing as an entertainer does when you're getting out and speaking um but but if somebody's already doing it then um you know and they're they're doing it but they've got another job then my, my advice tends to be well wait and you know wait until you got to the point where you can't really do both and that's the time to, you know, to leave your job and go full time doing it. But if, you know, if you can manage to do both, my advice tends to be, well, you know, you've got the best of both worlds at the moment. Where, you know, build it up and, you know, get more clients and, until the point where, hang on a minute, I can't do gigs because my job's getting in the way. And then, and then go full time. But, but for people who aren't doing it at all, um, then my advice is sort of slightly before that stage, which is, um, perform or speak as much as you can wherever you can however you can for as much or as little as you can you know don't worry about money don't worry about the audience don't worry about anything it's all about getting um pen and teller call it flight time um you know you just it's like a pilot you know you you need so many hours in the air before you're you you know you're good at trusted to be good enough because you've dealt with all of the situations that you might have to deal with 
you know, if you've only flown an aeroplane for one hour in lovely sunny weather, you've never experienced all the other options that you can have. Um, and it's the same with entertainers, really. It's just getting lots and lots of um, stage time, just lots of time in front of an audience. Um, and you want the bad as well as the good, because you sort of the bad sometimes helps more than the good, because you, you because you can't you can't get confident um, only having good gigs. You know, if if you, <laughs> um, because because you're always worried about the bad ones, um, whereas if you've had bad ones, um, you know that they're actually not that bad, and um, so you're not worried about them. Um, the, that, which sounds a bit complicated. The the best, the easiest way to explain it, I think, is is a boxer. If you're a boxer and you've never ever been punched in the face, you won't really ever be a good boxer. Because you'll always be, you'll always be frightened. You're going to get punched in the face, um, and so you'll never just, you know, have the aggression to go out and do it. Whereas most good boxers, all good boxers, have been punched in the face and, you know, knocked to the floor, got up, and the next day realised actually uh, it's not that bad. I'm all right. You know, it didn't didn't hurt as much as I thought it was going to do. He hit me three times, and, and I forgot about it. I lost the fight. Never mind. I won the one the day after. Um, and and it's exactly the same with performance. You need you need the hard gigs. You need the gigs where uh, the PA isn't quite right, so you realise you've got to adjust to the, 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 the gigs where the audience are too far away, the gigs where the, the room's too cold and everybody's drunk. And you, you need all of those to have done all of those gigs as much as you can, whenever you can, wherever you can, um, so that you walk out there looking confident. And the reason you look confident is because there's nothing really that's going to frighten you. Um, so, so yeah, the, 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 so it depends where they are. If they've, if they've been doing it for a while, I'd say wait until you get to the point where, um, you know, you, you, you can't do your job and this thing that you love at the same time uh, and then take the plunge. Um, but if they've never done it at all, I would just say speak, perform anywhere and everywhere as much as you can. So, uh, John, how can people find out about you? Where do they find out? What's your web address and all that? Web address is uh, www.john-archer.com. Needs updating my website, actually. So don't send me an email saying you can... (laughs) You can get emails all the time from people saying, your website needs updating. We could do it for you. I go, I'll get lost. Uh, I'll do it myself. Um, I I, I think your websites always need updating, don't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, mine does. But, you know, I've got got lots going on this year, so I'll I'll do it later in the year, I think. So that's my website. And then uh, Twitter and Instagram is at the Archini. The Archini. The Archini, which was an, a name I used for about a year when I first went full-time. It was a terrible idea, but if I'm doing anything that, you know, has got tickets to sell, I'll normally shout about it on Twitter. That's great. So thank you so much, John. You're a good mate, uh, you're a good lad, and you really are one of the best. And thanks for sharing a, a, some backstage little moments on uh, Get Good at Presenting. Thanks, John. Yeah, you're welcome, Lee. Thanks a lot. Take care. See you soon. Thanks for listening to the Get Good at Presenting podcast with your host, Lee Jackson. If you'd like to know more about Lee's work as a motivational keynote speaker and presentation coach, visit his website at leejackson.biz. That's leejackson.biz.